morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the April 8th, 2014 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, my first guest will be Daniel Pilchin and two students, Jordan Pittman and Julia Fung, from Daniel Pilchin's Ethics of Food course that he just completed teaching last quarter here at UCI. Then, as we move through April Autism Awareness Month, our guest of the second portion of the hour will be Jill Mullen to talk about her brand new book, Drawing Autism, a marvel of a publication presenting the artistry and self-expression of individuals diagnosed with autism. Don't go away. We'll be right back with my in-studio guest after a short break. Everybody, thank you for staying with us. Welcome back to the show. My first guests here in Studio A joining me are UCI lecturer Daniel Pilchman, I pardon me for the earlier uh, mispronunciation, and two of Daniel's students from a course he taught last quarter on food ethics. The students are Julia Fong and Jordan Pittman. Daniel Pilchman is a PhD candidate in the Department of Philosophy at UC Irvine and an adjunct professor at Chapman University, where he'll, I think he'll be taking himself once he's defended his dissertation. His work covers all areas of moral philosophy with specialties in international law, politics, and food studies. Map that, everybody. He first became interested in food as a child, listening to his father tell stories about the exotic and bizarre meals he had eaten while traveling abroad. I hope this includes insects because I want to I want more of that protein outlet. Since Daniel has developed interest in gardening, farming, cooking, dining, and anything else related to what we eat, he's covered this. So Julia Fong is a second year undecided, undeclared, she says, student at UCI. She is currently taking classes toward a public health policy major with minors in bioscience and management. So these are broad topics and uh, interest everybody. Her interest focus amongst general issues relating to uh, to both nursing and business. Jordan Pittman is a third year political science major and law and humanities minor at UCI. Her academic interests focus mainly on social issues, particularly racial and gender inequality, which she hopes to continue to investigate through law school. As I said, all three join me today in Studio A. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Daniel, Jordan, and Julia. Thank you, Claudia. It's Hi. good to be here, yeah. Well, good morning. everybody, all the pistons and mics are all churning away here. Let's, let's first, Daniel, let's talk about what possessed you to teach a course like this. This is the first time I take it. Uh, what kind of students did you think you were going to enroll? Were you expecting a lecture or seminar size class? What, what was the beginning of all of this? Well, the, the class is, is Philosophy 5. It's called Contemporary Moral Problems, and it's meant to be uh, an introductory course to philosophy. And so I, I knew it was going to be large, uh, about 200 students, and I knew it was going to be mostly non-philosophy students. So I, I wanted to mostly. let this mostly. If, oh, if yeah. you came in. Well, if you came in, you always expect to have sort of a good mix. And I wanted this class to be uh, an introduction to philosophy and an invitation to come and do philosophy. But based on, you know, terms and ideas and topics, 
that anybody could find interesting. And I thought, what's what's more universal than food? And what was the humanities uh, it, registration admissions? What were they? How do they uh, receive your proposal? I think uh, this is one of the classes that graduate student lecturers like me uh, are allowed to, uh, you know, be creative with and really choose topics that that they understand and that they care about and that they can sort of transmit that that interest to their students. So. So it was, it was really well received. Um, I got a lot of support from the faculty in the Department of Philosophy and, and a lot of excitement from the students and the other grad students that I talked to. Yeah, it's been received exceptionally well. So, All right. And uh, as I said, lecture or seminar size, how, um, how, how many uh, turned out and stayed past the second week? Yeah, so that was one of the exciting things about the class is that we started out uh, with about 200 students. Two? Hundred. Two hundred. So it's a big lecture hall. And, uh, you know, we had three TAs and we were all, you know, working, working, working. Uh, and what was exciting about the class was that, uh, you know, normally in the first two weeks, you see a lot of students switching classes and moving around. And, and we really didn't see that in this class. I mean, it started out uh, at a good pace and, and there was a lot of interest right from the beginning. And so so they stayed and, and we kept the big class and, and wow. had a lot of people sort of in it and, 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 and excited to be a part of it. Uh, well, maybe we'll get to the part where uh, they're going to figure out you're not going to be here next year <laughs> next to teach that. So uh, uh, do, is there going to be somebody that will pick up this course or it's going to be another creative PhD candidate will pick up their own theme? Well, so I'm, I'm hoping that somebody else in the philosophy department will pick this up. I mean, I've got the syllabus written. I've got the slides written that I'd be happy to let other people use. The copyright's out there. Well, I haven't done that yet, but we'll see. I mean, but, the uh, template is. Yeah, so yeah, the template's out there, sure. Uh, but but Chapman has, has picked it up and I'm going to be teaching an upper division version of the course uh, next fall there uh, there for about 25 students and uh, I'm planning on on making some changes having a lot more sort of out of the classroom activities I'm thinking we might go to a food bank uh, maybe we'll do a class trip to I a don't food know, desert a supermarket uh, oh I mean a food desert would be I mean it's a long drive we could do it I, I don't know there's so many different ideas and like things that we could do so um, I'm, I'm sort of having fun playing with ideas right now and I guess uh, we'll, we'll talk with the students here, too, a little bit about this. But so you said there's 200 in there, but it's so it's not a seminar where the students would carry the class. But did you find, though, as the course evolved, that they were carrying the class, and even though it's a more of a lecture kind of a structure? I definitely allowed myself to keep this thing very lecture based. I thought that my role as a lecturer was going to be more of the presentation of ideas. And then the hope was that in discussion section, student would, student, students would get the opportunity to uh, really sort of explore their own ideas there and also in the papers and sort of the writing uh, assignments that they were given uh, as well as you know ultimately this uh, the the project that they did where they went out to the farmers market uh, and got to sort of interact with people on their own terms and and have their own conversations with professionals in, in the food business which I might say was where this whole t this radio piece was hatched because I met some of them two different weekends anyway uh, doing their work at the Irvine uh, farmers market mm -hmm. so um, then let's we'll, we'll talk with the students now uh, Jordan and Julia what motivated you to take this class um, well this I is Julia Fong <laughs> hi um, I started taking this class as a GE initially um, general education yeah, a kind general of distributed requirement yes 
Um, but I actually got really engaged in the class because the first thing we talk about is the layout of the grocery store. And you also talk about how there's certain music that goes along with the grocery store as well. Um, mm -hmm. I work at Yogurland and it's really appealing. It's really interesting to me um, listening to the different kind of music that you actually hear in different environments. Um, we do play a lot of like alternative hip hop, like mainstream music. And also when you go into the grocery store, it's like the same thing. It's like that mainstream music. Um, so it's a lot of like things that relate to real life. And I, I continued this class just because it was a lot of things that I saw. Um, was there a difference? Me, so. Excuse me. Was there a difference? Now I'm, I'm thinking there's a different kind of an agenda where you're there for cycling the customers in the yogurt place mm -hmm. versus the grocery store. So what did you notice was the difference in the cadence and the, um, the style of the music in those two different enterprises? Um, I think at a grocery store, it's a lot more laid back. You can't hear the music as much. Keeping you there. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's actually true. Interesting to think about. Oh, okay. I, oh, <laughs> yeah, I thought you'd already covered that because then the other one, they want to move you out. I mean, it's a yeah, frenetic beat. A, a restaurants a lot too. Um, I actually noticed at all-you-can-eat restaurants, a lot of the time, the music is phenomenally loud. Like, it's really, really loud. So I guess they're trying to, like, get you out there, like, faster, like, trying to, like, make you move. <laughs> so. Right, yeah. right. So that's interesting. You bring that part, that the ethic of of how the customer is dealt with, uh, facilitated or otherwise, uh, and as a part of this. And so we'll see whether or not that's a part of your project. How about you, uh, Jordan? Um, for me, I took the class as a requirement for my uh, my lawn humanities minor, but yes. I stayed in it because I, the idea of investigating food as a moral dilemma, I thought in itself was so interesting, and and I, you know, I was right. It was such it was such a class where you could, we were going to learn things from whether or not eating meat was wrong or right and using different philosophers to to understand that to you know GMOs and subsidies and global hunger and all those different issues that I thought were very very interesting and then how we were going about understanding the class seeing it from an argumentative point of view and seeing both sides of of all of of, of these different issues I thought was was really interesting and that is a dynamic situation too mm -hmm. it's a uh, from what you might have thought maybe even as sh short as uh, 10 years ago or certainly 30 years ago mm -hmm. it was different. Um, so let me just back up a little bit. Uh, you can identify yourselves ethnically, but um, and could you tell us both uh, what you saw as the, the demographic, the ethnic demographic in the course that you, uh, in the, the ethics of food? Uh, Jordan? I... I think it was the what you were aware of at least. Okay, I uh, I would say probably was mostly Asian students and uh, like I don't know white students and I think it was pretty true to the ethnic demographics of the school. So, okay, yeah, representative of the the student wide yeah student body. Did you have anything to add, Julia? Or is it the same? Okay. <laughs> For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the web in uh, grocery stores all over the world at KUCI.org. <laughs> My guests are Daniel Pilchman, the, the lecturer for the, the ethic of 
Ethics of Food class and his two students, Jordan Pittman and Julia Fong. And so we were just talking about the demographics of this 200-strong lecture uh, that was uh, convened, uh, held last uh, this winter quarter at UCI. And so um, we'd, I'd like for you students, and maybe Daniel too has his own um, sort of backdrop. We, we mentioned his a little bit in the introduction, but I'd like for Julia and Jordan to tell us what each of your cultural experiences have been, your, your cultural frame of reference for food. Whether it's what how what your family did, what you what you read, and whether that f f food came to you. What were your responsibilities, and either pr providing for, a, you know, shopping for, or preparing? What what were your backgrounds with food and your decisions? Um, for this is Julia Fong. Hi, uh, for me, um, I'm actually very American based. I am Chinese and Korean, half and half, um, but most of my food decisions come from my allergy to walnuts and peanuts so i have to be very aware of what i eat and what i buy um it's amazing though because in america you have so many different options of what to eat we have different cultures that we're allowed to go to or different cultured restaurants that we're allowed to go to um but i'm actually cut off from a lot of those because indian food i love indian food it has a lot of spices it's so it's really tasty, um, but a lot of it has like almonds and cashews, peanut oil or something. Peanut maybe? oil, peanut oil. Actually, I just found out that I could eat. So well, not too dangerously. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! I think it's the protein that I'm allergic to. Okay. So and that's squeezed out of the oil or the, something, or it's just lower level. I possibly a lower level. I'm we not need a chemist. Sure. <laughs> Bring me a chemist here. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so a lot of my decisions based on food is because of my allergy. Self-preservation. Um, <laughs> but it also made me very um, aware of different types of food. And I'm really adventurous when it comes to trying new foods. Just because I'm so cut off from a large group that I just try anything that I can. Like usually my question to the waiter is if it has nuts. And if it doesn't, then I'm going to try it. Yeah. Well, I think I, hats off to you for being able to go to these enterprises. I'm not sure were I to have those allergies that I would put enough faith in the the restaurant staff all the way for them to bring out a plate that's not going to send me into an anaphylactic shock. Yeah, that's true. But have you ever ha gone into shock at a I, restaurant? I ha Oh, at a restaurant? No, but I had you had, had yes. one experience where it was a homemade rice krispie with peanut butter, mm. and I could not tell because didn't smell like peanut butter so I just ate it and I do have an epipen from pen so I have to stab that in my life but wow. it's, it's a dangerous thing but no restaurants <laughs> have ever caused you any problems like you've learned to identify you shake yes. around and maybe I have like a sixth sense and maybe that <laughs> I understand and maybe that it's again it's a new day with the ethics of food is that restaurant businesses have to be very attuned to that and probably for their own self-preservation, they right. don't get uh, emptied out uh, as a business. So um, that's that's maybe the ethics of food catching up with that, uh, that serious allergy. Thank well, you. Jordan, what about you? What is your, and maybe, Julie, you can join in with some other thoughts that come to mind. But, Jordan, about your frame of reference as you grew up and what you provided in terms of acquiring the items, preparing them, mm -hmm. how you uh, investigated it, as I keep thinking myself, with how, how literature sometimes makes it, uh, it's more vivid in some kinds of literature than perhaps in others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me growing up, um, 
I think, I mean, I don't want to generalize, but I feel like I had a very American sense of food. It was, if it's within your price range, if it tastes good, you make it, you eat it. Pretty simple. I mean, I think, you know, that that's that's mostly that's mostly how I grew up. But um, coming to college, I think, is when that shifted because now I was just buying food for myself and um, I was becoming more aware of what I was eating, um, especially being down here. I'm from I'm from NorCal. I don't know if that really makes much of a difference, but but I do think there is more of an awareness down here about about stuff like that. Really? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just see more farmers markets down here. Not that they they don't exist in Sacramento, but I mean, for the most part, I, I've seen many more like health food is very popular down here. Um, yeah, more well, so. How, where in Northern California? Um, you? Sacramento. Okay, well, maybe mm-hmm. that's kind of the rural. It's not rural. I mean, it's a city, but yeah. it's it's if it were in the Bay Area, I think you'd have a different story to say. De- in Northern yeah, California. for sure. Definitely. Or maybe Humboldt would be different than Sacramento, mm-hmm. or just. Um, Mm-hmm. So I guess there's all these subcultures that you're we could, that maybe yeah. that came into the lecture. Yeah. We'll yeah. get to that, Daniel. <laughs> so, um, so for me, yeah. So for me coming down here and having that shift in my relationship with, with the food I was eating and being more mindful of that, um, I think, and especially taking this class. I mean, after taking this class, I think I have even more of a thoughtful presence when I go to the supermarket or when I go just choosing to go to the farmer's market instead of the supermarket, things like that. Um, that's how I feel culturally. My food relationship has changed. Yeah. Daniel, did you want to add to these points? Well, I, I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a graduate student. And so I've had a little more time away from home now that I, you know, and, um, I'm the primary cook in my household, so I do a lot of the grocery shopping, and um, you know, it's I have a very hands-on relationship with food, so I'm, you know, constantly trying out new things and and exploring the farmers market and just sort of seeing what I can find around that that's going to be new and exciting and tasty, um, you know, but also environmentally conscious and um, financially available, right? So I, I've really found myself having to balance various values uh, in my food choices. And, and I tried to use that uh, sort of the, that balance of values as sort of one of the, the leading themes in the class, yeah. I imagine your values might be a little bit offended like a lot of readers with the LA Times disclosure last week of how much food uh, which was meant to be sort of in the Los Angeles Unified School District, how much food that was meant to uh, prepare to teach uh, students about how uh, what better choices to be making. And we're, we're seeing thousands of hundreds of thousands of food uh, waste uh, every every week there. I'm, so you might have incorporated that commentary. And how could a school district go about that? Well, this was so when we talked about, uh, you know, global hunger and and hunger domestically in particular, uh, you know, one of the major causes of hunger, one of the major contributors to 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 food insecurity is food waste. Um, I've read statistics that say that as much as one third of food produced uh, is never consumed, is actually just wasted and and, and goes away. Uh, I have a, a friend who's a dietitian and nutritionist up in uh, Washington, and she was actually doing some of the research that uh, sort of came before the LA Times uh, article. And, and yeah, I mean, it, it's really alarming to see how much food is being wasted in our schools, and in particular, how much of it is, is sort of 
the good food that we hope that our kids are going to be right. eating. The, right? food, the, the food waste alongside with uh, the choice wasn't changing. The, the, there were still uh, vending machines with crap. Excuse me. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's as nasty as I get. And so uh, when the idea was to tweak the taste and the preferences and choices and it, it looked like none of, none of that was happening but it's it's a slow process and 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 i think a lot of people who especially who've grown up in um you know la unified or i come from long beach unified that was where i i got my primary education uh my pre-college education it, you know i i remember that right i remember the student store that sold chili and fritos instead of you know anything nutritious for us uh, and, and I remember the appeal as a 14 year old who just, you know, was able to buy my lunch for the first time and, and wasn't, uh, always having my lunch packed or anything, I mean, you know, I remember the appeal of, of the food. And so I can see how difficult of a problem that would be to approach from the administrative side. And then historically speaking that in my day, that wasn't even an option. We had, we brought it home, brought it in a paper bag or the old classic lunchbox or, it was on that nice stainless steel tray, the, uh, the hot dish. So, I mean, th th we didn't even have those choices to attempt mm -hmm. it. So that was, that, that's a sort of an, uh, a market intrusion at the school site for that. So that, that's another ethical discussion. Well, uh, we don't have tons of time, but I want to give both Julia and Jordan an opportunity to talk about what you um, did. Uh, I guess everybody's project had to do with the farmer's market. Mm -hmm. You were sent there. So what was the prompt and what did you do with the prompt? This is Julia Fong's going to start. Okay. Um, so the farmer's market project, our assignment was to go to the farmer's market, and we had a series of interview questions. So we interviewed different vendors, um, asked them where their food came from, how far they go to travel, like to go to the farmer's market. And the farmer's market's here at um, UTC, right across from UCI in the parking lot. Um we asked them about their food, if it's organic or not, what are the benefits of it, and something that they would like to let us know or like tell people about farming. No, UTC um, University, I forget, the team center. Town? University Town Center, mm -hmm. right. That's where uh, the mar farmer's market on Saturday mornings right, here nearby. Right, every okay. Saturday morning. Um, and actually, we started the project, we had to make a Prezi for it, which is a presentation online. It's like a virtual presentation. Um, and we had to interview people. I originally thought that it'd be a good idea to um, take a video of it, or like our group decided that it'd be a good idea to take a video um, of the interviews just so that we can relay the information later and put it in our Prezi. But then after about two or three interviews, I realized we have a lot of substantial like, information and the emotion you could see when the farmers are actually talking. They're act they really, really care about their business. Um, and I think that was just the most like awe-striking thing. And what I learned out of this project was that each farming, it just there's a lot that goes into it. And there's a lot that a lot of people don't know. Um, and yeah, I think that- Like what do they not know? What like, did you learn? The difference between pesticide-free and organic. They're, the basic difference is that organic is you have to pay for the certification for the certification and they both put equals amount of equal amount of work into their farming it's just one is certified and one is not and a lot of the farmers that i did talk to um really told me about that point and they were just saying that you know it really it's really just the work 
the workload is the same and they put in so much work into any type of farms and like each farm itself is like a different personality too and it's just like it's I don't know the community itself is just amazing yeah so was this your first time be- uh, the assignment or b- you'd already been there before you're sort I, of familiar um I live across the street so I have been there before but I don't realize the things that actually go on through the farmer's market it's a different culture when you walk through it's there's people playing music and it's just like it's like this friendly environment where you want to talk to people you're not afraid and it's you talk and you converse with the farmers and you learn so much you know it's it's amazing and yeah it's community with a capital c yeah oh yes jordan tell us about your project your introduction to the market and your project Mm -hmm. that you carried on we we know what we know what the prompt is now (laughs) uh yeah no i you know when i went to the farmer's market and you know like julia was saying we have to ask those those different questions um it's kind of you know you have to talk to strangers but like it's it really not for long no no actually yeah because they they're so friendly and they're they're so passionate about what they do that they want to talk about it and and they're interested in uh in everything that they're doing and i think that's what i i took away most from it kind of bouncing off what julie was saying it's you know there's so much dignity and respect for for the work and you know being a farmer's market you know being a local farmer you're up against these really big you know corporations of food and and to be able to make the food that they do and being able to make it look as good and taste as good um you know that that i i'm sure i know now it takes a lot more work than it seems um and also you know when you talk to them when i talked to one of the one of the farmers she was saying how she tries to make the healthiest um, food with from the healthiest products that she can um, with her farm, and and you see that love for for what they do. And I think what people may need to be more aware of, maybe you know, when they go to the farmers market, is that there's so much work in this. Um, and to go there, you I feel like you should have the same respect that you would have for like a grocery store or, or anywhere else. One of the other farmers, he was saying how people will try to haggle with him and, you know, try to get the prices down. But it's like, you know, the, they set the prices I, at what I'm sure is profitable for them and, you know, what makes sense for them as as uh, as a business. And I'm, oh yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because mm-hmm. I, I experience this all the time. It's like it's a cultural prerogative mm-hmm. for someone to negotiate that price. Mm-hmm. And I happen to know in one setting where this isn't about me. It's about the what we're experiencing there, folks. And so I knew that this vendor of the, the at the flower stand, Leo, he grows everything himself mm-hmm. and there was one individual who said I and this this is a lesson it's a cultural interaction it was, I, I thought it was nice little short case study so she tried to negotiate with mm-hmm. him and I turned to her and I said I applaud you for trying <laughs> but did you know that Leo grows all of the stuff himself mm-hmm. these are good prices I'm not sure anyone a bit about the prices mm-hmm. but anyway I just first I acknowledged that she had culturally she had to not accept the, the yes the asked for price mm-hmm. but and so what was interesting is in a few minutes I'm still because I happen to know Leo and I'm talking it's been a while since I was buying this stuff so <laughs> so in a few in a minute or two later she was pick she had picked up two big bouquets of flowers and she was going to buy them mm-hmm. and i thought wow so i thought i shared this with another vendor like this but to deal with that 
recognition of what that customer had to do but maintain the integrity of that transaction mm-hmm. and it worked mm-hmm. and I thought man this this should be replicated so yeah so anyway so that's that's what's always going on there and they, they just mm-hmm. have to do it or else they mm-hmm. culturally don't respect themselves that some yeah. of the customers yeah so that, that's a wonderful point so tell us uh, I, I don't know if you got to finish talking about your own project so oh, yeah. um oh uh, well I mean basically the, the project, you know, I took all that information and put it into presentation. Um, and, and doing that, you know, you really get to, s- you see, because, you know, you have to take pictures and it's very, it, you know, it's kind of a creative process trying to make the presentation itself. Um, and so kind of putting it all together, um, you I came to that conclusion of, wow, this is a very respectable, very dignified industry you know the the farmers market as you know farmers and 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 the vendors there you know what they do is it's it's really more incredible than I think you know most people think it is and I think that's somewhat similar in terms of how we also kind of I I think for the most part you know you people take food for granted in general and I think taking kind of for granted the work that goes into the food and the process of the food and that's that's what I took away from that this class in that project in particular well and I guess my my little endorsement suggestion is keep coming back there's Mm -hmm. going to be so many additional dimensions than first met the eye and and, and even as you probed it's a time-honored kind of a interaction and relationship that one can establish mm-hmm. uh, with s- certain vendors. And maybe that's something you've already established, Daniel, from your regular attending of that market. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one, one, one vendor has told me, uh, some, you'll, you'll wonder, well, why, why does this seem to have gone up in price or something? And he'll say, well, this more specialized, this, this golden beet versus some red beet, mm-hmm. he'll just tell me how much more per pound his seeds cost him. And, you know, not to mention what could have happened with somebody's uh, transportation breaking down or the uh, the pipes busting and not sufficient irrigation or a change in weather. So it's uh, it's phenomenal what can uh, what can change it up. Well, I, I guess we've had, we've given you a little bit of a chance. So um, to talk generally about that, I want to give you a chance to wrap up your uh, what you had to, to learn and what where take what changes you uh, in this project uh, from here on, ladies, students. <laughs> Um, I think just taking this class makes you so much more aware of everything food related and even ethically like we learned a lot of principles that are very general um it's it's just so interesting and yeah thank you Daniel <laughs> of course you're welcome <laughs> oh yes go ahead um for me that was Julie this is Jordan now for me yeah it's very similar I mean I think like I said earlier I just I have a more thoughtful presence because of this class when I go wherever I go in terms of buying food and um and knowing and voting I guess you could say with with the choices that I make when I go to the when I go to the supermarket or I go to the farmer's market or wherever I'm buying food you know I think that is what I've taken away from this class knowing that I can even though it's just for myself even though it's personal and it's a personal relationship I can choose how I want to move through the food industry so thank you again wow Daniel you get the last word before yeah. we close. I, I think that um, food is one of those exciting things that um, everybody has to deal with and think about and make choices about. And so I, I'm, I'm really glad to be a part of what I see as a, a growing movement for people to become aware of, of what they're eating and, and what they're choosing and how that relates to the bigger world. You know what I'm thinking here as we close? It might be cool for you to keep a running track now of 
how much, like at the beginning, ask your students how regularly they've, or where do they typically shop? Sort of like a, do a, a baseline of the class. You could, I don't know if you can back up and do a baseline the other one. So there's a baseline of how classes over time are changing, as well as the baseline for each class and how their consumption uh, in terms of the marketplace setting and in terms of their home preparation, how that's changing over the course of the course. So uh, I guess we'll, we may have you back here after your Chapman course. I'd love they it. They could bring them uh, over here to, or they, or actually just take the show over there. <laughs> they, I think theirs is an online, um, I don't think it's a, a radio uh, student uh, program there. So you can take that to them and uh, enrich in them. So, well, I, I want to thank all of you for coming on the show today. PhD candidate and lecturer Daniel Pilchman, along with his two students, Julia Fong and Jordan Pittman, after they wrapped up last quarter's course, The, the Ethics of Food. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Everybody stay tuned. We'll be right back after a short break. My guest for this portion of the show is Jill Mullen, a New York City-based behavior analyst who has recently released a new edition of a book entitled Drawing Autism, a marvel of a publication presenting the artistry and self-expression of individuals diagnosed with autism. Published by Akashic Books, Drawing Autism is the subject of this interview today. Jill Mullen earned her Bachelor's of Arts in Psychology at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, her Master's of Arts in Psychology at the University of the Pacific, where she focused on applied behavior analysis, then her Master's in Education at Touro College in General Education and Special Ed. She comes to us today from New York City. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Jill Mullen. Thank you. Good to have you on. Let's drawing autism opens with Temple Grandin, a worthy and a suitable choice for her important contributions toward a better understanding of autism, as well as what her her graphic arts have given in in the animal husbandry uh, whole industry, and uh, so she's she has turned her well honed uh, visual learning attributes into into some. Uh, real breakthrough kinds of understandings, as I was saying. I'd like, uh, Jill, for you to explain a bit to our listeners the three types of autistic minds that she describes, the visual thinker, the pattern thinker, and the word specialist. Um, I think how Temple sees it is that individuals on the spectrum tend to have different talents, and so she talks about those that are visually talented, uh, whether they're able to um, draw art or understand the mechanics of something graphically and visually represent it. And then she also talks about the types of autistic thinkers that are really good at looking at patterns. You often see this in individuals on the spectrum that may be very good at not looking at numbers and examining numbers and mathematics and science. Um, and um, what does she describe? This is her description of the spectrum. Those are the two that come to mind. The, thir- uh, the third one, um, let me go back to my, uh, the third, the word specialist. So, and that's, that's very, um, that's 
probably the smallest uh, proportion. Mm-hmm. So, well, the, the purpose of the book certainly is giving artists uh, on the autistic spectrum a platform for acknowledgement of their creative enterprises. But as you present, Jill, much more, uh, art is a means for focusing and a mode where the autistic individual has the fullest capacity for expression. Can you talk to us about that? Well, I think in general, art is one way that people with autism can ha- can be extremely talented. There's definitely other ways as well. And I think historically, the media has talked a lot about art and um, science and mathematics and you know computer science, where there's a lot of talent amongst people with autism. And so this venture, I kind of looked at another subset that are talented at art in particular, and just want to take a different view and and generally kind of educate the public that truly people on the spectrum can be talented in all sorts of different ways. And what's kind of exciting about the book, I think, for people or family members who maybe are just finding out that they have someone that they love that's on the spectrum can say, well, what is my child's talent or my friend's talent? And so can kind of step back and recognize that these individuals have a lot to offer us. And I, as as you so well present in this book, Jill, it's not just what their talent is, but it it's a way to center the person. It's for them to be so centered and grounded. It it yields an a, a, a disposition that is joyful. It's happy for them, mm-hmm. since so I much think- of their world is about coping with the neurotypical world. But uh, but they are settling into that artistic process that just is giving them joy. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so and I think a lot of the artists it really does. It's an outlet for them in terms of. Having something, in a sense, it could be a leisure activity or a profession, a career that some of the older individuals in this book are doing. They're trying to pursue a career and be able to live independently. Um, And I think overall it gives a lot of confidence to the artists, Um, whereas some of them struggle on a day-to-day basis with social interaction and being able to, whether it's make friends, and some of them are unable to live independently, whereas they can show their art and it can be accepted by society. And people can look at it and say, wow, you have a lot of, you have a lot of great talents and um, are excited to participate in, with the art, artists in terms of supporting them. And it's, you do have a, a, a broad spectrum of of functioning along um, amongst all of these artists, and uh, it's it's revealed either in how they articulate, whether they can articulate at all directly to you about what's inspiring them for the piece that we're looking at on the printed page, as well as uh, in the back you provide a, a short biography for some that gives us some context and we understand there that uh, where how how very limited but they're all sort of woven in together there's no hierarchy it's just it's what's coming through in the in the the kind of craft the uh, the content and as I said the responses to you well I I I wanted to note and I want you to um, sort of flesh this out with me here for me most of the artists were born after, I figured, 1990, when autism has been more readily recognized, identified, and diagnosed. Hence, there was earlier support and nurturing intervention for those uh, 
more recently uh, born uh, on the spectrum. And uh, as in the case of uh, uh, Zach Ham, uh, whose disposition has been guided and nurtured by his family, as you say, the, the family mm -hmm. never accepted autism as a limiting disability. Mm -hmm. um, I think a, a lot of the book, and Temple points this out to the beginning, and I think why she was so excited to participate in this process is, you know, she looks back at her own life and her mother, you know, pushed her from when she was just a young girl and she was diagnosed very young. And this was years ago before there was a lot of therapy and treatment and support. Right. Um, and, of course, some areas have more support than others. But even back when she was developing and her mother just decided, you know, I'm not going to accept that, you know, that she's not going to be able to learn and develop. And so she really nurtured her, and not just in art, but in every particular way educationally. And so I think a big part of this book is just making sure that people know that individuals on the spectrum can have a lot of different talents. And Zach Ham is a great example because his family was very excited and loved celebrating his artwork. And I think other people may not have, whereas... Our, his particular artwork is he draws his house over and over and over again, and he loves his house, and it's what makes him happy. And his family's really proud of that and has always supported him in doing that. And so that's helped his family, him feel better about himself and what it is that he likes to engage in, which is drawing the picture of his house over and over again. And it helps his family feel proud of him. So it, overall, I think it helps their interaction. Absolutely. And so uh, the older the older artists were diagnosed as late as when they were in their fifties, uh, and and as you mentioned, Temple Grandin, who is now I think was she in her late sixties now or early seventies? I don't know exactly her age. I think at, at least her late sixties. I'm thinking even older now. But but so those that were diagnosed uh, later, uh, they, maybe they weren't necessarily identified. They were prop likely higher functioning, uh, maybe more self sufficient. Mm -hmm. But uh, so how they. Uh, they're different, too, in how they've processed this disorder and their artistic expression and their capacity. Could you talk about I mean, that their capacity is different in their both their visual and their verbal fluency? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, it's definitely true. I, I think a lot of the artists that were diagnosed late, later, what they've said, not only within their art, they were really happy to obtain a diagnosis because for so long, they knew they were different, and they just didn't know how exactly to pinpoint that difference. And a lot of what I found with people on the spectrum is that are high-functioning, that are diagnosed later in life, is that they're very happy to know uh, what it is that's going on with them and that they're not the only ones that may think in these particular ways, whether it's through patterns or visually. And so it actually gives them a bit of an outlet, and there's definitely groups out there that support individuals with what was historically called Asperger's, but now is changing because of the diagnostic criteria, uh, is changing for that. But there are groups and support groups, and it's kind of helped these people reach out to one another and recognize that they're not alone. Absolutely. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Jill Mullen, a New York City-based behavior analyst who's been working with individuals with the Autistic Spectrum Disorders, and uh, she's talking about her recently published book, Drawing Autism, here on Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming the worldwide on the, the web at KUCI.org. 
Well, I, I guess I'd like to call out some additional uh, individual artists that uh, you feature. I'm, I'm, I'm going to move past with the, the lovely way you have structured the whole the book and that how it, it describes for us various aspect, aspects of autism, but the artists themselves. And I really hope everybody will get a chance to pick up a copy wherever you are. I, I know at the LA Times Book Festival, they may have a chance to get a look. Did you know? Um, I, I, well, actually, I'll talk to your agent about that. <laughs> Make sure they br- they're bringing copies to the LA Times Book Festival, which is going to be this weekend at uh, USC. But um, So the artist, I hasten to return to my topic here. Stephen Mallon is a very fluent artist, atypically fluent. Uh, he explained some, and I, I quote him, some concepts recur and give me no peace until I have found some way to express them, even if expression doesn't happen till years later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that a lot of the artists, especially the ones that are higher functioning, Oftentimes, you can think of the art that they want to create as almost an obsession. And I think Stephen is discussing the fact that he has an idea for something he wants to create, and if he doesn't just get his hands on it and do it, he's going to have trouble sleeping, he's going to have trouble functioning on an everyday level. So the art allows him to kind of manifest that sort of energy and compulsion he sorts of has. And then once he engages in what it is that he's, developing and creating, it helps him kind of come back down and, and calm down. Um, and I do think that a lot of the artists are become, in a way, obsessed, for lack of a better term, but they get very excited about what it is that they want to do and very focused and very driven on what it is that they want to go ahead and do. And you often find this manifest in autism in different ways, other than art as well. Right. Um, you could have an individual that is you know, essentially obsessed with the history of baseball games and can tell you anything about a particular baseball game that happened 50 years ago, and they're, they're continually memorizing and researching and whatnot, and I think that manifests itself within the artwork as well. And I guess let me I guess back up is that a, the, a major... Uh, component here is that they're in spades on the spectrum they are visual learners more more so than uh, the neurotypical individual and that uh, that this visual learning combined with uh, what you you call prodigious memory or uh, I would call OCD uh, is what makes for those really vivid details that comes through their art once they're able to set the media to their canvas, as it were. So it's a it's it's a it's steering that. So there's another one, David Barth. Among other aspects of his artistic process, process explains. I'm going to quote him. I always try to draw as little as possible. As soon as I can see what it is, I've done enough. End of quote. And he accomplishes this. And Jill, I, I want to hear how you found him. He's accomplished this very outcome with his partial partial portrait, yet certainly recognizable Nelson Mandela. It's exactly how he describes it. And I, you know, you you know it's Nelson Mandela, even though you have part of a nose, you have only one eye, part of a mouth, uh, one cheekbone, but you know that's the guy. How did you find David Barth's work and David Barth? Um, well, when I originally started in the outset of the book, it was in uh, in 2008, I reached out to autism organizations throughout the world. 
what I tended to find since I was sending out submission calls in English, mostly I heard back from English-speaking countries, uh, but David is actually in Holland, and his mother is or was involved with an autism organization that sent out the submissions, and so she sent me samples of his work, and I fell in love with his work right away, especially on the cover we have what's called Vogels, which in Dutch means birds. And once you see the cover, you'll know exactly why the piece is named Birds. Um, David has, at that time, was obsessed with birds, and he was learning all the Latin names for all these different birds, and he would just continue to draw these birds over and over again. So just through pure submission process, his artwork came in, and I just thought his work was wonderful right away. And he's a teenager now, so originally when he did the Vogels piece, I believe he was either 9 ten, or 10. He was very young when he started out on that piece. So he's um, been active in the arts since he was just a young boy. And after the first, um, first drawing autism came out, he was actually asked to show his work in Beijing. So him and his family got to travel out to Beijing and be part of an exhibition out there. So it was really exciting for him. Uh, as an artist, to just really beginning his professional career and just as a, a as a child, really. So as you mentioned, um, but he's yes, yeah, sorry. I was just going to say he's continuing to make work now and starting to show his work all over in different galleries and different museums. As you mentioned, the first edition was out in 2009, and it, you're giving us some insight uh, in uh, by the time we reach the bios at the end of this book of where there there has been now a they're they're represented by uh, agents and they have their own web mo- many of them not all of them have websites where their mm-hmm. work can be seen and I imagine it's a now also a, a, there's a marketplace for these kinds of work so um it's uh, it, it's taken off in a in a huge way so um mm-hmm. and i want for people to know that uh, your website then for where people can uh, find this book were they not able to to find it in the stores or at the the la times book festival this weekend I think one of the best places you can go to akashic books which is the publisher of the book um, of course, you can always find it on Amazon, um, so that's another easy way to, to find it. But if you want more specific information, the Akashic Books website is the best place to check out the book. Uh, I also have a Facebook page for Drawing Autism, and that's an open forum for anyone that would like to submit their artwork or just talk about maybe a film that they saw that's related to autism. So it's kind of an open forum to, for people that kind of jump in and, and discuss whatever it is that they feel like in relation to autism with definitely a slant towards the arts, but it doesn't have to be the arts. And the Facebook is a terrific forum giving the visual and the uh, verbal um, individual, either one, a chance to present their material. I think that's that's where it's really a, a, a hugely important kind of a, a, a forum for uh, availability. I know it's, it has its. It's a mixed blessing Facebook, but um, this is this is <laughs> terrific for because as as you have presented. I mean, there are some that are heartbreakingly, un, I mean, un- nonverbal at all. They can't. You give it every different sort of way of inquiring about what is this person saying with their piece, what's inspired them, and they they simply are verbally uh, unable to 
to convey that message. It, it's all coming through uh, in the kind of detail, the color selection, the texture, or as like you're talking about uh, with David Barth, it's the repetition in, in the, the art piece that uh, is talking, giving us tremendous insight about the autistic mind processing um, their world for our benefit. Well, um, Jill, I I really appreciate your insight, as I said, in drawing autism in the varied portrayals and the, the gifts of the autistic mind. I want to thank you so much for being on the show today here on Ask a Leader. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's good having you, and I will look for uh, your work at the, the Book Festival, folks. It's at USC both Saturday and Sunday this week. So, Jill, thank you. Take care. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. So I've got a few announcements. Tonight at the City Council, we'll have the opportunity to establish three new friendship cities that are being recommended. They include the, um, I'm going to really butcher these names, that's not my intent, Nang Trong, Vietnam, Karachi, Pakistan, and Baoji, China. And if you like the idea of expanding our Friendship Cities program from the already two established Korean friendship cities, and you'll want to come to the city council meeting Tuesday, that's tonight, April 8th at 5 p.m. to show your support. And then tomorrow, there will be an orientation here at UCI for people interested in visiting detained immigrants in Orange County. Uh, that's it's April 9th. This visitation group, Orange County Friends of Detainees, is part of a national organization, Civic is the acronym for Community Initiatives for Visiting Immigrants in Confinement, which aims to ease the isolation of detainees, many of whom are far away, really far from their families and communities. The orientation will be held in Social and Behavioral Sciences Gateway Number 1517, 5.30 p.m. tomorrow night, April 9. More information is available at the website endisolation.org or friendsofdetainees uh, at gmail.com. Uh, last August, on uh, August 27th, I covered this. You can listen to my podcast on that date either on KUCI.org or askaleader.net. Well, that's the end of the show. Thank you, everyone, for listening. See you. Talk to you next week. Wait, deep in your deep, deep soul is over. Wait, deep in your deep, deep soul is over.